Good morning. It's great to be back at Cedar Home preaching again in the pulpit. Thanks to Pastor Dan for graciously inviting me to share the word with you while he is in Africa. He'll be back soon, Wednesday. All right. I'm looking forward to Friday when Pastor Brent leads us in the word and we uh, celebrate Good Friday. And, uh, and then Resurrection Sunday, always a great Sunday, amen. I can't wait. I, that's my favorite Sunday of the year, maybe Christmas and, and Easter and what Pastor Dan has to bring us. But today we're going to be looking at Palm Sunday. So let's pray together and then we'll go into God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reality of Jesus. Thank you that we were not left alone, condemned, in our sins, but that your Son, your only Son, your eternal Son, your perfect Son, went to the cross on our behalf to absorb our sin and your wrath against our sin as a substitute for us. And that by your grace you infused the presence of God into our spirit and washed us and renewed us and raised us from the dead. Thank you for these, this great hope and thank you for the day that we have today to commemorate that and all week long think about it and then come in bursting with excitement at the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for all that you are and all that you've done for us. Bless this word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a well-known story. You've probably heard it before, but I thought I'd share it anyway. It's about a man who bought a donkey from a preacher, and uh, the preacher told the man that this donkey had been trained in a very unique way. The only way to make the donkey go was to say, hallelujah, and the only way to make the donkey stop was to say, amen, and the man was pleased with his purchase and immediately got on the animal to try out the preacher's instructions. Hallelujah, shouted the man, and the donkey began to trot. Amen shouted the man, and the donkey stopped immediately. This is great, said the man, and with a hallelujah he rode off, very proud of his new purchase. The man traveled for a long time through some hills, and soon he was heading towards a cliff, and he couldn't remember the word to make the donkey stop. Stop, said the man. Halt, he cried, and the donkey just kept going like a car without brakes. And Bible, uh, church, uh, please stop shouted the man. The donkey just began to trot faster, and he was getting closer and closer to the cliff edge. And finally, in desperation, the man said a prayer, and he said, please, dear Lord, please make this donkey stop before I go off this cliff. In Jesus' name, amen. The donkey came to an abrupt halt, just one step from the edge of the cliff. Hallelujah, shouted the man. Well, as most of you know, today is Palm Sunday when Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. And uh, it's typically called, as Pastor Brent said, it's typically called uh, Holy Week or Passion Week for the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, Holy Week, kicked off by Palm Sunday, includes the events of Jesus' trial and his sufferings and rejection and crucifixion and his death on the cross and his burial in the tomb. And then Holy Week or Passion Week culminates with, of course, Easter Sunday, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ bodily from the grave. But today being Palm Sunday, we're going to take a closer look at the events uh, of his unique entrance into Jerusalem on this donkey. But it's also important to remember something, that this isn't the only time that Jesus is going to ride back into town. All right? It's not the only time he's going to ride back in a unique way. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus will ride in again, only this time in a much different fashion than he did the first time he rode into Jerusalem. And today we're going to compare the two. We're going to compare his ride into Jerusalem with his Revelation ride. We're going to compare the two, and we're going to do it in three ways. Three comparisons between the time when Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday and then when he uh, rides in and fulfills uh, our hope with his mighty second coming in Revelation chapter 19. 
verses 11 through 21. title of the message today is Jesus Rides Again, and he will. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to compare Jesus' two rides, his Palm Sunday ride and his Revelation ride in, in three ways. Comparison number one. Um, the first time Jesus rides in, he will display his humanity. But the second time he rides in, he's going to reveal his deity. The first time he rides in, he's going to display his humanity. The second time he rides in, he's going to reveal his deity. Now, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus displays his humanity. It says, as they approached Jerusalem and came into Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle or lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now, first off, let's get one thing straight. Let's remember something very important. That at no time that Jesus was on this earth in the flesh did he cease from being God, okay? We all know that, right? He did not cease from being God, but he was clothed in human flesh. It's very important, okay? And we're reminded of that in these first three verses. He, He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's sovereign over all circumstances. He's able to tell the future. He even refers to himself as Lord here in, uh, in verse uh, 3. Tell them, him that the Lord needs them. So Jesus never stopped being God when he came to this earth in human flesh. And yet verses 4 and 5 here make it clear that although he was God, he became fully man. I think one of the most explicit descriptions of that in the entire Bible is Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, In Christ, all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And although sinless, Jesus took on physical humanity while on this earth. And and as we're told here, he fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says that the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem gentle or lowly, some versions say, riding on a donkey. In the east, when a ruler or leader rode into town on a donkey, it meant that he came in peace. And so here on his first time to earth, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, it, it means that Jesus is coming in peace. God incarnate, fully man, yet perfect and sinless, humbly enters Jerusalem on a peace mission, on a donkey. To do what? Ultimately go to the cross and die for our sins. What? To establish peace between us and God. Now, although the first time he rides in, uh, displaying his humanity, uh, the second time he comes in, he's going to reveal his deity. And, and we see that in Revelation chapter 19, as uh, pastor has already read that to us. But I want to read the first uh, verses, 11 through 14 rather, And it says, this is the second ride. We're comparing the two rides, the Jerusalem ride and the Revelation ride. The first comparison is when he came in on Palm Sunday, he came in fully clothed in humanity and humility. Now, when he comes the second time, he's going to reveal his deity. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him dressed on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And all God's people said, Amen. You see, when Christ returns a second time, his deity will be unveiled. Um, he's not coming in lowly, clothed in human flesh. His deity is unveiled. And just to look at the mechanics of this verse, the, he, it's going to be a visible return, visible to everyone. Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 24 himself. He describes 
his own return in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 31. And I want to read you Jesus' self-description of this second ride into to the earth. He says, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. It's going to be visual. Here in verse 11, if you notice in chapter 20, uh, 19, it says, uh, the writer to, of the book of Revelation, John, says, I saw heaven standing open. Can you imagine? You and I will visualize that. We'll see it. In fact, in the first uh, chapter of the book of Revelation, it says that, what? That look, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will what? It will see him. It's a visible return, and his deity will be unveiled before our very eyes. And it says Jesus will be sitting on and riding on a white horse. Verse 11 says that. Now, there is another rider of a white horse in the book of Revelation, those of you who know that book to some degree. But scholars and commentators pretty much agree that that rider in Revelation 6 is much different than Jesus here in chapter 19. In fact, they say it's the Antichrist, a false Christ, a mere facsimile or imitation of who Jesus is. It's the Antichrist who will bring new levels of earth evil to the earth during the tribulation. But there's no doubt about who this writer is in chapter 19. It's Christ. Okay? So in the east, when a general rode into the town of a conquered opponent, he would ride in on a majestic horse. And Jesus fulfills that here. So when we compare the Antichrist and his, his ride in on a white horse in chapter 6 to Jesus on his white horse here in chapter 19, um, there'll be no comparison. Reminds me of a, of a, of a, a story from a movie. Have anybody ever seen the movie Crocodile Dundee? Okay. There's a, there's a scene in there that reminds me of the difference between the first Christ, false Christ, and Christ who rides in revealing his deity. Um, let me just describe the scene to you. Um, 1986, this film came out, Crocodile Dundee. And the Australian hero is in New York City with his girlfriend. And a group of hoodlums tries to rob them. Remember that scene? And one of them carries a little switchblade knife. And the, his, the crocodile's girlfriend says, Watch out, he's got a knife! And uh, Crocodile Dundee reaches to a sheath at his back and pulls out this monstrous razor-sharp buck knife. And he smiles and says, That's not a knife. This is a knife. And the hoodlums flee. Now, Almighty God considers the false Christ on the white horse who has terrorized the earth during the tribulation period, and he says, that's not the Christ. He says, this is the Christ. Okay. And our Lord appears in all of his glory and his deity to conquer his enemies. And it says he's called faithful and true in verse 11. These are God's attributes of God. As God, he's completely faithful, completely true, completely reliable. Jesus is the source of all truth. And verse 11 says, With justice he judges and makes war. No longer the prince of peace. No. Um, Jesus is returning as the all-powerful God. And he's in his glory and he's going to make war. And it says in verse 12 of Revelation 19 that his eyes are like Blazing fire. Um, what does that mean? It means that his knowledge penetrates everything. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't know. Did you know that God can't, Jesus can't learn anything? Did you know that? It's not because he's unteachable or dumb. 
It's just he already knows everything, so he can't learn anything. He's all-knowing, and he sees everything. He sees what no one else can see. There are no riddles. There are no uh, uh, unsolved mysteries to Christ. Now, that's comforting, in a way, to know that when we go through hurt and pain and trial and difficult circumstances where we have concerns, needs, and some of you came in here today, I mean, a crowd this size, you're going to have some pain and hurt and need and difficult circumstances. Isn't it great that the all-knowing Christ is totally aware of what you and I are feeling at any given time? Amen? No matter what we go through. And that's, that's comforting. But that's not the meaning here. The meaning here is that he sees everything. And that's convicting in some ways. Because Jesus sees the innermost heart. No matter how people try to rationalize or cover up or hide their behavior or their thoughts or their motives or their sins, Jesus sees evil in all of its forms. He discerns it all. He can't be fooled. No one can pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. And everything on that day will be exposed to him when he returns. Hebrews 4.13 is just a masterful expression of that. And I don't know if you're familiar with that verse, but Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So there's nothing that he doesn't see, no matter how hard we try to hide it, nor will evil be able to hide itself when he returns. It'll all be exposed. And it says in verse 12, On his head are many crowns. The Roman soldiers pushed a crown of thorns onto the skull of our Lord Jesus. Little did they know that the crowns on Jesus' head when he returns a second time speak of his infinite victory and power and dominion and royalty as God the Son. And then in verse 12, it also says he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. What does that mean? Names in biblical time revealed the nature and the character and the identity of a person. And because Jesus is God, we will never be able to completely plumb the depths of who he is. I think sometimes we think, well, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on the throne and we're going to know everything about them. But the truth is, they're so awesome that we'll spend eternity learning about God. It will never fully apprehend the awesomeness of God. We'll learn about Him forever and ever and ever. That's Jesus. And his ro- He says in verse 13, He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. That re- represents the blood of His enemies that will be shed in judgment. Again, first time He rides in, Palm Sunday, He's coming to establish peace. Second time, He's coming as the judge. And then it says, His name is the Word of God. In the Greek language, that means, word means revelation of something. Jesus is the revelation, the manifestation of Almighty God. And His glory won't be veiled when He returns at all. There'll be no doubt about who He is. It'll be obvious to everybody who sees Him, and that's everybody, that He is Lord. And although Isaiah tells us, I believe it's in the 52nd chapter, or the 53rd chapter, that when we look at Jesus when he was on earth, there was nothing about him that would particularly attract us to him. Very plain looking. But when he returns on his second ride, he'll be stunning and awesome and completely recognized for who he is, the ultimate supreme God of the universe. So on Palm Sunday, today, Jesus rides in. He displays his humanity. He displays his humility. Thank God for that. He had a reason for that. But the second time he rides in, he'll reveal his awesome deity. That's comparison number one. Let's go to a second comparison between these two rides, his ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his revelation ride. The second time is, comparison rather is, (coughs) the first time Jesus rides in, he's welcomed, but by a superficial crowd. He's welcomed by a superficial crowd. But the second time he rides in, the whole world will completely submit to him in one instant. 
The first time, the worship is not sincere. The second time, people have no choice as to whether it's sincere or not. It's going to be sincere. It has to be. There will be no choice. Okay, back to Matthew chapter 21. Um, the first time Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, he's welcomed by a superficial crowd. Verses 6 to 11. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. And so the first time, Palm Sunday, what we're commemorating today, he's welcomed by a superficial crowd. It says it was a very large crowd in verses 6 to 8. Scholars guess somewhere between 150,000 and 2.5 and million. Now, I'll split it in the middle and say a million and a half. I mean, no one knows for sure, but it was, it was a packed house there in Jerusalem. Okay? And they spread their cloaks on the road and cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That was not uncommon it was an Old Testament custom for when a king was honored and rode into town to pay him homage. You see that with King Jehu in the Old Testament. They did the exact same thing. And they say Hosanna, which is a, a biblical word for salvation or a praise word meaning to save. Son of David, a popular Jewish title for the coming of the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's great worship. And look at the results in verses 10 and 11. The whole city is stirred. A million and a half people. It's a lot of people. The crowd asked, who is this? And <clears throat> the crowds were worshiping answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. But it looked sincere, but it wasn't. It was not sincere. Underneath the floorboards, underneath that wild celebration of worship was insincerity, was superficiality. And that's one of the most sobering things that commentators and writers and scholars agree on when it comes to this passage is that even though this, if most of this crowd, if not all of them, um, shouted and sang and they danced and they raised their hands and praised Jesus for being their Messiah, once they realized that they, he was not going to come in with military power and defeat the Romans on their behalf, the behalf of Israel. And once they realized that Jesus wasn't going to give them an instant victory, and once they realized that he wasn't going to put them in positions of power and authority and deliver them from the Romans, once he, they realized he wasn't going to give them what they wanted in the time and in the way that they wanted, that soon after that, they turned on Jesus, many if not most of this same crowd, and said, crucify him. Sobering, isn't it? I mean, it's sobering to me. It scares me. It makes me wonder, is my worship sincere? I mean, as long as I'm getting what I want, you know, three squares and a roof over my head and I'm taken care of, I can worship Jesus all day long. But what happens when I don't get what I want and my circumstances don't go my way and life hurts? It's painful. And he doesn't come through for me in the way and the time that I think God ought to come through for me. Will my emotions toward Jesus cool off? Or will I continue to worship him? You know, this crowd, they turned on Jesus so quickly. And you know, we've got to guard ourselves against that. Our worship of the Lamb of God should never be based on our circumstances. Our worship of Jesus should never be based on how good things are going or, or, uh, or that he does things in my time, in my way, or that he keeps me from suffering and pain. No, our worship should be because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done for us, regardless of the, the difficulties we go through in life. Okay? And so it's a good to have a gut check once in a while, isn't it? 
Why am I worshiping? You know, we live, do, not, do we not live in a wonderful country? I love this country. Don't we have, I mean, there are places where people who came here would come to worship like we are today who would be arrested for that. Their property would be taken away. They'd lose their job and maybe even their family. How blessed we are. But sometimes it's, it's kind of good just to think if everything was taken away, and I don't want that to happen. I don't like pain any more than anybody else. But if, it, if things don't go well, will we still say, you're worthy of praise, and I love you because you first loved me. And so the first time he's worshipped in a superficial way, but the second time it will not be superficial at all. Because the whole world, listen to me, and in, in more important, listen to the scriptures, in, in, in one instant, the whole world will bend their knee to Christ. Remember, remember what it said, every eye will see him. And not only will every eye see him, every knee will bow to him in an instant of time when they see him when he comes riding in for a second time. Let's look at that. Revelation 19.14 The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the, wi uh, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Woo! Think about that. An angel standing in the sun, 11,000 degrees on the surface of the sun. You can fit 25,000 planets the size of earth in the sun. And an angel standing in it. That ought to be some angel. Wow. I'd like, I, I, I can't wait to see him. All right? Anyway, standing in the sun and crying in a loud voice to all the birds flying mid in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And so this second time Jesus comes in, okay, he's not coming in and facing insincere worshipers. He's coming in, and the whole world is going to completely submit to him. It says the, the armies of heaven were following him on white horses. Guess who that's going to be? Now, probably some angels, but guess who's got to be? You, don't be afraid. There's, you're not going to say the wrong answer. It's us. It's us. I mean, this is, this is almost incomprehensible, frankly. But we'll be riding in. It'll be the, you and I who are Christians who have either died and gone to be with the Lord Jesus or who will be taken up in the great rapture of the church either before or during the tribulation. And <clears throat> excuse me, and we're now part of his army along with all the angels in heaven. Let me read to you uh, a neat path, a couple of verses of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? It says it right there. Um, and if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels, you and I, riding in with Jesus on white horses? And then uh, just one more quickly, the, the little one-chapter book before the book of Revelation, uh, Jude, says in verses 14 and 15, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. That's you who know Jesus and me to judge everyone <clears throat> and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We're going to be riding in with Jesus. 32 years ago, I married way above my pay grade, uh, almost 32 years ago. I still don't know what happened. I'm, I'm just convinced the Lord blinded her for a while until, until we got married and then it was too late for her to turn back after that. But, but we honeymooned down in central Oregon. A beautiful area. Some of you know Sisters Bend, Mount Bachelor, 
Jefferson Wilderness area. And we honeymooned at a place called Black Butte. Beautiful place. Anybody know that area besides? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Anyway, so we're, it's kind of a cowboy country kind of motif, as would be expected. And so two city slickers from Portland went down there, and they, they advertised horseback riding. And so I thought, oh, let's ride some horses. That'd be fun. And I think we went on. I can't remember, Drew, but was it about three hours? Seemed like about 12 hours, but it was a three-hour horse. So the first 20 minutes of our horseback, it was kind of fun, you know, bouncing along in the trail. And then about an hour later, it wasn't fun anymore. It, it was, I started getting stiff and sore, and, and, uh, and after three hours, um, I never wanted to see another horse again. <laughs> but man, I'm going to be riding a supernatural stallion then. I'm going to be in my new resurrection body. Roy Rogers is going to have nothing on you and I, okay? Because we're not going to be riding trigger. We're going to be riding supernatural stallions. Again, I don't know how this is all going to be, but no saddlesaurs the second time Jesus comes back. And we're coming in with him. How awesome. Man, oh man. And it says, the, it gets better, by the way. It says the armies of heaven, in verse 14, uh, will be dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And I say this seriously, with a lump in the f my throat and my heart's just pounding and I'm so happy about this because one of the greatest truths of salvation as a Christian is that the moment, the instant we're saved, people, we are declared perfect and righteous in Christ. Titus tells us in the third chapter we've been washed by regeneration and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in the book of Colossians, we're holy, the moment we're saved, we become holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation at that moment. 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In an instant, a, a moment of time, we are, uh, the book of Hebrews, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Positionally, in the eyes of God, we're faultless, perfect. God imputes and imparts the righteousness of Christ in and upon us. And we look the same to him before as well as after we sin and fail. Now, that's, that's exciting. That's how I live each day. And yet, that's kind of veiled, isn't it? It's veiled through our mortal mind and mortal flesh and body. It's obscured by our mortality, our fallibility. But that won't be obscured when we ride in with Jesus. We'll be dressed in fine linen, white and clean. We'll know our righteousness with Jesus. Can you imagine how exciting that will be? Think about all the hang-ups we have about ourselves. Think about how we put, put ourselves down and we shame ourselves or we, we walk in guilt too long or, or, uh, or, or pound ourselves for our failures. But when we ride in with Jesus, we'll be white and clean and powerful in Him. And, but don't lose sight of this fact. It's going to be very violent. It's going to be very violent. Again, not the Prince of Peace this time. In verse 15 it says, Out of Jesus' mouth will come a sharp sword to strike down the nation. No baby Jesus this time. No suffering servant, suffering Savior. With one sharp, penetrating, decisive word, an amazing thing is going to happen on this earth. That same Jesus that Colossians tells us spoke the universe into existence, that same Jesus, in one instant of time, will subdue all of the evil nations and evil people of the world and establish an absolute rule upon the earth. It says here in verse 15, he will rule them with an iron scepter. Now, iron scepter is not a heavy metal band, okay? It's not the name for a heavy metal, thrash metal band, okay? Iron scepter is a phrase that was used to mean absolute unbreakable authority, okay? Imagine how it's going to be with Jesus in charge, Okay? No empty promises. No social chaos. Sorry, Shay, you're out of a job. Police officer, we won't need you when Christ. No crime. 
No social chaos. All right. No deceptive, corrupt leaders or politicians. No abuse of authority, no injustice, no unfairness. Evildoers will be punished and ruled over with the absolute authority of Christ. I can't wait. And it says he carries out God's wrath against all evil people and its influences. And the, and the phrase treading out the winepress of God is used. The, it, it was a frequent Old Testament picture uh, treading out the winepress for the execution of divine wrath of God's holy anger against sin and evil. Evil people, demons, and Satan himself. And Jesus will deal with them like grapes are crushed in a wine press. He'll just crush them. And it'll be, by the way, it'll be a terrible, awful day for those who have not first aligned themselves with Jesus Christ. It's a warning there. Verse 16 says, On his thigh and on his robe um, is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He shall have absolute authority. And verse 17 tells us that the birds will be called by the angels in the sun to gather together what's called the great supper of God. Now, this is not the wedding supper of the Lamb mentioned in verse 9 of this chapter, which is when we will be gathered together to be with our Lord and be ushered into His eternal kingdom. This great supper of God will be a day of judgment for those who oppose God and His Christ. And the slaughter is so great when God calls upon the birds of the air to clean up this mess, we're told that the slaughter will measure to the height of the bridle of a horse for 200 miles. That's a lot of bird food, isn't it? And that's what they're going to feed on. The carcasses of those who have been judged by God in the Battle of Armageddon. And guesstimations are there will probably be about 200 million people. And their flesh will be eaten by the birds. What a difference in rides, huh? Both very significant. Well, let's go to our last one here today. A third and final comparison between Jesus' first ride, Palm Sunday. I'm so excited about Good Friday. I'll be here. I can't wait. I can't wait to bow my head to the Lamb of God. I, I can't wait. I love Good Friday. And, uh, I mean, if somebody could stand up here and read the crucifixion of Jesus, and that would be enough. But I know Pastor Brent will be giving us the word, and other things will be happening. We'll sing, probably. But that's the first ride in. It's awesome. Because, well, as you know, Jesus eventually went to the cross. The second ride in, though, it's going to be judgment. So let's, the, the third comparison here between the two rides. The third comparison is this. The first time Jesus rides in, he soon went to the cross. But the second time he rides in, he will conquer all evil. All of it. Let's look at the first one. The first time, this is our last comparison here today. The first time Jesus rides in for Palm Sunday, it wasn't long before he would suffer excruciating rejection, emotional and spiritual rejection and pain, physical pain. He would go to the cross and he would die on that cross as a perfect, faultless, sinless substitute and atonement for our sins. Okay? In fact, Jesus predicted this in Matthew before we ever get to Matthew 21. Back in Matthew chapter 20, if you'll just note with me, Matthew chapter 20 and verse uh, 17 through 19, this is what, what Jesus says. Because he, he says this before he rides in on, on the donkey. Matthew twenty seventeen. Now just as now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Okay, the first time he rides in, Christ suffers as a perfect substitute for your sin and my sin. And then he offers us this awesome gift of forgiveness and acceptance and approval and salvation and righteousness by faith. But the second time he rides in, his revelation ride, he's going to victoriously conquer all 
evil. Let's read these last verses in our passage in Revelation um, as, we, as we go to this third comparison. Verses 19 through 21. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and the rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now we see here in verses 19 through 21 that the Antichrist, who will claim to be God, and the false prophet who promotes the Antichrist in the world and persuades the people of the world to take the mark of the beast and worship his image. See, they deceive and they delude and they persuade the world's rulers and armies to think that they're more powerful than God and that they can defeat Jesus Christ upon his return to earth. But we're told that this deceptive, devilish, destructive duo are easily captured by the mighty word of Christ. And one of my favorite verses in all the scripture uh, that has to do with this is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Just listen to this. Don't, you don't, even, don't even thumb there, but it says when Christ returns, quote, the Lord Jesus will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth. Just one from Jesus, and all evil will be crushed and vanquished. And the, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and all the world's armies and people arrayed against Christ will be instantly defeated. No weapons needed. And they'll be thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, hell, to suffer there forever. And the rest of the world's armies who oppose Christ are put to death by his mighty word. And it says in verse 21 that they again become bird food when all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. And the battle of Armageddon will be concluded. One person put it this way, the fowls of the air will devour the rotting flesh of the world's Christ-conquered armies. Now if we had the time and we don't, but if we did have the time, if we read on to the next chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, um, we will see, would see that Satan and all of his demons and all those who refuse to believe in and obey Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will experience the same fate as the beast and the false prophet, chapter 20, verse 10. Because all evil is going to be vanquished and conquered and destroyed and God's new heaven and new earth will be ushered in, and those of us who know Jesus will live there with him forever. I'm excited about that. The older I get, the more excited I get about it. So what do we do? What, what, what do I hope, and what does God hope, and I hope that you hope you do when we leave here right now, this morning? What should we do? I think there's two things we ought to do. We ought to remember, and we ought to respond. All right? Remember, first of all, what is Palm Sunday about? What's Holy Week or Passion Week all about? What should it be about? What should we be, be thinking and remembering this week? Here it is. That our Lord Jesus, the everlasting God, the uncreated creator, who had no beginning and will have no ending. Hebrews says he was without beginning of days or end of life. He came to this earth, born of a virgin, completely human, humble, lived a sinless and perfect life. He suffered rejection, horrific beatings, horrific emotional and mental and spiritual torture. And then he went to the cross. And on that cross, he died a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. Once for all. And then he graciously gave you and I who were sinners condemned, who had no chance to redeem ourselves, no ability to to gain approval before a holy God, hell-bound for eternity, He gave us graciously His righteousness and His acceptance instead of judgment for our sin, and He made us perfect before God. And now what are we? We're hope-filled, heaven-bound believers. I was in the grocery store out on the island to pick up a few things, 
And uh, I was going through the 12 item and under less. 12 items and less. Un- you know what I mean. The, the and, uh, and I just had a couple things. And the guy in front of me was buying a newspaper, a Seattle Times, I think it was. And on the newspaper was some money. And the, I'm just looking. I'm a people watcher. I'm a hopeless observer of people. And I'm looking at the guy. and I'm look, He's got a buddy with him. And I'm looking at the cashier. And she goes, uh, now, is that money for the newspaper? Oh, no. He said, that's for the paper. But I also want a lottery ticket. And he named the kind that he wanted. And you know what he said? I was standing right there. He said to the cashier, you know, you got to have hope. You got to have hope. Give me a lottery ticket. Now, I'm not here to go on a crusade against lottery tickets. I, I wouldn't waste my money on them. Or I should say God's money on them. But, I mean, if you want to do that, I'm, I'm not going to divide my fellowship with you over that. But that's what his hope is in? A lottery ticket? The chances are what? Not very good. Plus, have you ever read what happens to those people that win the lottery? Their life gets worse than it was before. Our hope isn't in some goofy lottery ticket. Our hope is sure because Jesus died for our sins. I'm clean. I don't act clean all the time, but I am clean in the eyes of God because of his sacrifice on the cross. Praise his name. I'm so grateful. Let's remember that. Let's remember what he did. He, you know, he was, though in very nature God, Paul tells us, he didn't consider that something to be held on to, but made himself a man. And we ought to have those thoughts in our mind this week and, and, just, and just be grateful. And be grateful for that. That's what we ought to remember. And this is what we ought to do. Sincerely worship him and obey him and love him out of gratitude. Our motivation this week and every week, really, as Christians, ought to be gratitude. I'm going to, by his strength, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to love him, serve him, worship him, obey him, witness him to other people. Why? Because he rode into town on a donkey and went to a cross for me. I should respond to that. Christianity is not just a a book with rules. It's a relationship based on God's love for us. And we ought to just, if you're doing anything, thinking anything, saying anything, acting in any way right now that's inconsistent with a love relationship, we ought to stop that and respond in gratitude because of a loving God who died on the cross for us. But let's also remember one last thing. Okay, Palm Sunday is not the only time Jesus is riding in. And like the sermon title says, Jesus rides again. And he's going to judge all evil and wrap up all of human history. It's not a fantasy, it's not a myth, it's not a fable or a story. It's not a fairy tale. It's going to happen, and I believe sooner than later. It's not in my lifetime, I think in the lifetime of of my children. I, I believe that. I don't have a date. but. And what should we be? We should be ready. Say, how can I be ready? Get ready and stay ready. How can I be ready? Get ready and stay ready. Walk with God. Let's not superficially worship Him, okay? Let's devote our whole selves to Jesus and follow Him each day until He returns. Doesn't He have that coming to Him? Okay. And then I want to say this. This is my closing statement. I never believe a preacher when he says that, by the way. But this is my, this is my clothing, closing statement. If you're not a Christian here this morning, okay, can I challenge you to ask yourself a question or two? Ask this, will I ride in with him? Or am I going to be judged by him and separated from him forever? So those are the only two choices. Am I forgiven and clothed in his righteousness or will I be cast away from him with the beast and the false prophet and the devil and his angels and all unbelievers forever? I don't want to be there in that place. Ask yourself, have I appropriated his perfect righteousness and forgiveness through faith in his blood 
shed on the cross to atone for my sins? Or am I relying on my own effort to be saved? Or putting it off? I'll do it down the line. You see, God's done everything to make you safe and to forgive you ever sins. But you need to establish a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Not just temporarily, not just superficially like the crowd who only looked devoted to Him, but in a, in a genuine acceptance of Christ as Lord and Savior. You don't have to worry about your future. You can have peace this morning if you receive Jesus into your heart and your life. Improve that by being a devoted follower of His. So you have a chance now, but soon there's not going to be any more chances. And the good news is that for now, Jesus is gracious and is compassionate, but the next time He's not going to be gracious and compassionate. He's going to mean business, and then it will be too late. The first time He came to redeem, the second time to judge, the first time on Palm Sunday He rode alone, the second time with the armies of heaven. And the only thing that makes sense, really, when you think about it, is to worship Him now and receive Him as Lord and Savior and follow Him with all your heart from here on out. God, thank You. Thank You for Palm Sunday. Thank You for the Incarnation. Thank You for the death of Jesus on our behalf. We are the most fortunate people in the world to know Jesus. And thank You that You're coming again to vindicate Your name and to judge all evil. And we rejoice that we'll come with Jesus and be part of that. And help us to live in lieu of that. And Lord, if there's anyone here today, um, help them here today that doesn't know Jesus. Help them to understand it only makes good sense to settle accounts with Jesus now before it's too late and to live for him. We love you, Father. We look forward to Friday night. We look forward to Sunday on Easter Resurrection Day. Bless us this week as we remember these things in Jesus' name. Amen.